Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 36, The American Revolution, part one. Finally. Uh, we should probably recap last week a little bit, Andrew, and what kind of led us here. Last time we mentioned that Logan, a Cayuga Mingo man, kind of had his whole family killed by good-for-nothing settlers, and that in turn sparked Lord Dunmore's war in the Virginia-Ohio country in 1774. So this week we're going to cover what's going on the two years leading up to the American Revolution. If you're just joining us, I would highly recommend going back and starting at our first episode of the French and Indian War, because in my opinion, the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War really tie in great together. They really set each other up. So I think that you won't be so lost. If you're just interested in Revolutionary War history, that's great. But if you got time, swing on over and, and check out some of our earlier episodes. And then we do have two episodes in between these wars that kind of fill in the gap that's going on with the Native peoples, which ends up explaining what leads to the American Revolution as well. We're going to throw some disclaimers out right now. This series we're doing on the American Revolution is not focused on the American Revolution per se. We're going to focus on how the Haudenosaunee were involved in this conflict, and they're involved quite a bit. But we're not going to be covering battles in South Carolina or diplomacy with Benjamin Franklin in France or you name it. Anything that ties in with the Native Americans in the Northeast is going to be central. But we think that you're going to learn a lot from that. Now, Andrew, uh, we've been talking about Sir William Johnson for uh, months now on our podcast, and he has been influential in Iroquois diplomacy for decades and he's kind of getting to the tail end of his life and all of his accomplishments, but we've kind of got to go back in time a little bit and talk about him a little more. We had alluded that he had a common-law marriage with a Mohawk woman, didn't we? Yes. But we didn't really get into it that much because it wasn't really that important at the time. But now that uh, new characters are going to be emerging into the Revolutionary War, we kind of got to introduce these characters. So this is a good opportunity to talk about his wife, and her name was Molly Brandt. She was a young Mohawk woman. Uh, some people described in some letters referring home after meeting her that she was uh, very attractive. They, they didn't say it in those words, but uh, basically that's what it translates. So he met Molly, and she could speak very good English. She had a, a lot of English friends in the family. So Johnson kind of brings Molly Brandt on as being kind of an aide-de-camp. She would travel with him and in help interpret for him and things like that. And a relationship bloomed from this. They ended up being together for many, many years, and they had nine children together. Now, when Sir William Johnson married Molly Brandt in 1759, he kind of became acquainted with her much younger brother, uh, a man named Joseph. And Joseph, he would have been 16 at the time that Molly and Sir William Johnson got married. His Mohawk name was Teonanega. And Joseph, he kind of joined the household, even though he was younger than his sister. And because Johnson was now his brother-in-law, and Johnson at this point had already become an adopted Mohawk chief, this gave Joseph overnight a lot of influence amongst the Mohawk at a young age. Johnson, he looked after his new young brother-in-law, and uh, he told him something that parents and elders have told young youth throughout uh, thousands of years, I think. And you know what that is, Andrew? You can be whatever you want to be. Uh, close. It was, if you want to do anything with your life, you need an education. Johnson pulled some strings and he got Joseph Brandt sent all the way up to Connecticut to be educated 
by Reverend Eliezer Wheelock. And you had mentioned him briefly in our last episode, Andrew, because uh, in The Last of the Mohicans, uh, the Long Carbine mentioned how he was taught by uh, Wheelock. And he was very famous at the time. He actually went to Europe and he raised a ton of money because he said, I want to open up a school for Native Americans. And everybody donated. And he came back with just tons of money. He founded Dartmouth College. Yeah. The original name of the school was Moore's Indian Charity School, and it eventually moved. Um, So when young Joseph was learning how to read and write English at this school, he met one of Wheelock's helpers. And uh, this man's name was Samuel Kirkland. And uh, remember that name because he's going to become important in our story. Not only was he getting a great education, but also during this whole time during the French and Indian War, He went with Sir William Johnson on many of his campaigns. But Andrew, if he's 16 when he's going off to get his education, that would mean he would would have been uh, significantly younger than 16 when he was off fighting in the French and Indian War with Sir William Johnson. That's right. He was barely a teenager, and he was actually fighting in some of these battles at Ticonderoga and into Canada, and he may have even been at Fort Niagara. So he's gaining a lot of experience on both cultures during this time, and we'll touch on more of that as he gets older. But we're going to wheel back around, and we're going to just touch on what's setting up the American Revolution. So we're going to, again, just hit the bullet points and give you a quick refresher. After the war... French and Indian War, I mean. What happened, Caleb? What did the British try to do to the colonies? Well, they had promised the colonies that they would give them free money to uh, fight the French. But now that the war is over, they're crawfishing and they're coming in and telling them that they need to put some modest taxes on to help pay off this huge debt. And there's all kinds of different taxes they put on. They make a big stink out of it and they repeal it. And then like a sneaky government does, they just switch it for another tax a few months later or a year later and everybody gets all upset again. And this is just happening for a whole decade before this. In 1768, the British government sends a large garrison of troops to enforce the taxes and the duties on imports in Massachusetts Bay. Because how can you really collect the taxes if people refuse to pay them? Well, if you got soldiers at the docks, demanding that the people pay the duty before they unload the ship, you can enforce this. But to garrison these troops costs more money. And then makes the relationships with the public even more strained. Because now all of a sudden, instead of just getting that IRS thing in the mail saying you owe taxes, now you're getting an armed guard come to your door and tell you that you owe it and you better pay or he's going to take something from you. And on top of that... People did not like the fact that a distant nation was occupying their homes. Like, no, literally, some of the people had to board the soldiers in their homes because they couldn't afford to house them in this huge complex. So everybody got a soldier or two and you had to feed them, take care of their clothing and do anything else that they demanded. So they really started to feel like they were under an occupied force. And it was actually the law. You could be thrown in jail if you refused any commissioned soldier could come in and take over your house and even if there wasn't room for you guess what you better go find a place in the barn to sleep because they would get priority over you in your own home and this was some of the propaganda that the sons of liberty were really exploiting at the time to make matters worse there were all these soldiers now occupying boston and they got a modest pay it wasn't great but they found out that when they weren't on duty they could work part-time jobs down at the docks Well, you're already making all these dock workers mad by imposing these taxes, 
And now these soldiers are willing to work for less. So all these dock hands realize that these soldiers are taking away their jobs. They're taking our jobs. <laughs> it's not the immigrants coming in and taking the jobs. It's those darn lobster backs. So things kind of come to a broil in 1770. On a cold night on March 5th, an officer was yelled at on the street by a wig maker's employee about not paying his bill. Now, the guy had paid his bill, but there was miscommunication and the other guy didn't know that. So what happens was one of the lower rank soldiers comes over to the wig maker and tells him that he shouldn't talk that way to this officer. And I'm sure some unpleasant words were exchanged. And the guy gets smacked in the head by the butt end of his rifle. And soon a crowd begins to gather. And as the evening progresses, this mob is just getting out of control. They start throwing stuff at soldiers, snowballs and oyster shells and, and rocks. And on top of that, they're kind of put in an impossible situation because they have explicit orders to never shoot at, at the population. And that information had leaked to the population. So they're, they're whipping stones at them from point blank away because they know that the soldiers have orders basically to not fight back. So it gives the crowd tons of fervor as far as attacking them. Now, it's not just a random mob. I mean, it is, but they're actually starting to organize. And there's one guy who becomes the leader of this mob, and he is egging the British people on. And he's a man named Crispus Attucks. Now, the thing that makes Crispus Attucks very interesting is two things. He's the son of an African father and a native Wamapong mother. So you have this half-black, half-Native American man leading this group of other mulattoes and Africans and white lower-class dock workers that are all getting upset about the British. And as the night progressed, things get more and more out of hand, and then something happens. It's really vague. The British do not give the order to fire, but a shot gets fired into the crowd. Somebody yells fire somehow. Whatever happened... One person fires, and then all the other soldiers unload, and the next thing you know, you have people dead and bloody in the street, and other people dying, and the first person killed is Crispus Attucks. This kind of makes him out, him and these other people out as a martyr, and the propaganda that comes out from the Sons of Liberty, predominantly from Sam Adams and Paul Revere, is that these were innocent people mowed down by <laughs> these tyrannical British officers. They understood the importance of the name. Like, if you hear the Boston Massacre, what comes to mind, you know? Uh, now, I'll let you know that the British refer to this as the incident at King Street. <laughs> A lot of people see this event as the one event right before the revolution, the thing that kicks it off. That's not really true, but the Sons of Liberty definitely played it up that way. And what makes Crispus Attucks so interesting is in the future, people point back to him as the first martyr of the American Revolution. And he was an African and a Native American. And abolitionists in the future played this up too when they were trying to advocate against slavery, saying, look, African blood was spilled in the American Revolution too. He's kind of been lost to history because once Woodrow Wilson uh, took over in the 1920s and teens, he washed all that kind of stuff from the history books. Anything that had to do with Native Americans and Africans in the Revolution, they totally wiped it out of the history books. So Boston's on the brink. John Adams, our second president, does the noble thing. He actually gets most of the officers acquitted. None of them get hung. But Boston's really tense. 
Fast forward, Caleb, 1773, the British East India Company goes bankrupt. Aren't they the bad guys in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie? Sounds about right. They were not a scrupulous company by any stretch of the imagination. The British government bails them out and they say, all right, we'll absorb the company and all this excess tea that you have will send over to America and make them buy it. And that way the American money will pay for the tea, which will bail out the East India Company and we'll get tariffs on it and everybody will be happy. That sounds great. Uh, Only thing is, what if the colonial Americans don't want the tea? Think of it this way. What is tea? They're freaking ground... They're, They're leaves. Ga- ground leaves. You can grow them basically anywhere. They, they'll grow here in North America, and then you dry them out. There's literally no processing to them or anything. So why would you be paying huge import fees and taxes from tea coming from overseas when you can just buy it locally, but then they start making rules, oh, you can only buy imported tea, and you have to pay these taxes on it. No way, man. So the Sons of Liberty come up with a plan. We mentioned before that the Sons of Liberty are kind of like this rebel group, secret society. Predominant figures in it were Sam Adams, Paul Revere, among other people. But they kind of had code words for themselves. And one of the code words was that they called their group the Mohawk River Indians. And you may think to yourself, well, what? Why would they do that? That Boston's nowhere near Mohawk territory. You got to go hundreds of miles to get there. But they kind of had this idea that The Iroquois were the most noble of all of the Native American peoples and the ones that had the most liberty in their system of government. And so they kind of drew from that. And they may have also thought, Andrew, that putting face paint on and and feathers for hats would make them so they can't be identified to the police after breaking on and throwing government property overboard. Exactly. So they all spread the news and everybody makes up their own headdresses, paints themselves in war paint, sneak onto the boat in the middle of the night, Start grabbing the crates and barrels and tossing them into Boston Harbor. Everybody goes home. British government's really upset, but what can they do about it? So that's what's setting everything up in Boston to start percolating before the American Revolution. So let's cut back over to actual Iroquois territory and see what's going on in the 1770s. Well, Andrew, I briefly mentioned a man named Samuel Kirkland, who Joseph Brandt had met at Eliezer Wheelock School for Indians. He was born in uh, 1741, so he was only two years older than Joseph Brandt at the time. They kind of developed a little bit of this acquaintance friendship while they were at the school, even though Samuel was a teacher and Joseph was a student. But you, know, you may be asking, why was Eliezer Wheelock there? He was there because he felt a calling to be a missionary, and he wanted to work amongst the Indian nations. And if you want to learn from anybody, then Wheelock would be the person with the most experience. He, like I said, he was famous all over the world for the work he was doing in educating the Native Americans in Connecticut. Samuel Kirkland, he was only with Eliezer Wheelock for a couple of years. But within those couple of years, Eliezer Wheelock basically gave him his blessing and said, I think you're ready to go out. You're still a young man. You know, go do your thing. So he moves from Connecticut back to the heart of Iroquois territory. It was kind of special in the in the sense that he was a language genius. Yeah, he just picked stuff up. It really is amazing. He mastered not only one of the Iroquois dialects, but in some people say that he mastered all of them. He mastered at least five of them. At first, he tries to go work among the Seneca, but 
They really don't want him around. They're very suspicious of him. And there was a big Catholic influence amongst the Seneca still at the time. So a Calvinist missionary coming in, it's, it's just going to kind of rock the boat. So he ended up developing very friendly relations with the Oneida Nation and the Tuscarora, who lived in very close proximity. And so they invited him to settle in there. And his ministry really took off, as well as education. There are two schools in New York that are still named after him. Now, on top of going and becoming a missionary amongst them, he's actually going to work as an advisor and an ambassador to the Iroquois. He's going to, throughout the American Revolutionary War, that's why we're mentioning him now, because uh, he's going to show up in a few years negotiating treaties and fighting for the Iroquois. And you're going to be like, who is that? So this guy, he really went and batted for the Iroquois when they were down during and after the Revolutionary War. And this influence that he's having kind of starts to sour his relationship with the Johnsons because they see him as a New Englander. And those New Englanders are troublemakers and they're causing sedition and rebellion. And you're kind of pushing the Oneida and the Tuscarora that way. And so with the Johnson family upset with him, we see that Joseph Brandt starts to sour on him too, but we're giving too much away. We'll get to more of that as the war starts to unfold. And now we need to get to 1774 when probably I would say one of the most significant events happens in this time period for the Haudenosaunee, and that's the death of William Johnson. He's been the front man for decades, like we said. In 1774, William Johnson is leading a conference with the Iroquois nations at his home at Johnson Hall, and they believe that he had an aneurysm or a stroke and died. Yeah, his son-in-law reported in a letter that he was seized with suffocation. So, you know, it could have been a seizure. Most likely was a brain aneurysm stroke. He just, uh, he just choked up and died one day. His esteem had become massive, and we all know that when anything happens during Haudenosaunee Council, you know, they just put everything on hold. And they sent out word to people in the whole area, and a funeral happened, and there were delegations coming from numerous colonies and the Native nations, and at his funeral, they had over 2,000 people attend. And on top of uh, there just being tons of people, there were some very prestigious people there. Uh, his pallbearers included Governor William Franklin. That name sounds familiar. That's because that's Benjamin Franklin's son. Oh. Uh, if you ever hear about the son that, uh, I think this is the one that Ben Franklin wouldn't even talk to because he sided with the English. I think that's William. He was the governor and he sided with the, the English. And there were also uh, judges on the New York State Supreme Court. He was buried at St. John's Anglican Church. And like Andrew said, the day after his death, the chiefs from all six nations performed their own traditional Iroquois condolence ceremony. After the mourning, they formally recognized Guy Johnson as Sir William's replacement successor. Yep, he was his nephew. And this is where the problem's going to lie, because Guy Johnson's going to have a lot of influence, but Guy Johnson is not his uncle. And right now, 1774, the world is going to get turned upside down real fast. And so it really makes you wonder what would have happened if William Johnson had lived another decade. Things would have been very interesting. Maybe they wouldn't have been much different, but they definitely would have been more interesting. With his death and kind of the fail, I don't want to say the failure of Guy Johnson. He just wasn't what they needed. But this is going to create a vacuum, and we're going to see young Joseph Brandt, who's not so young anymore, 
and he has a great education. He can read and write English and speak multiple languages. He has a war history uh, from learning how to fight in the French and Indian War. All eyes are going to start turning to him and his sister. You mentioned that women in the Iroquois society run the show. And one person is quoted saying that one word from Molly Brant meant more than a thousand warriors. Whatever she wanted to have happened, happened. Now, Caleb, you alluded to that Joseph Brandt becomes influential amongst his tribe, but he also becomes a very devout Anglican Christian. He actually translates the Anglican Catechism and the Gospel of Mark into the Mohawk language. Yeah, uh, I think that this probably dates all the way back to Joseph's parents and his older sister Molly, who for generations had been devout Anglican Christians. Uh, so now Joseph all of a sudden has this education, and just like his brother-in-law told him, you know, if you want to do great things, you need an education. Now he's got that education, and he's going to be the first person ever to translate the Bible into Iroquoian language. That doesn't mean that everybody's really happy with him, though, because a lot of people view him as not an actual hereditary chief. Nobody has appointed him. He does have a lot of influence. But a lot of the old school people look at him with very wandering eyes. Yeah, saying, kind of, where do your loyalties lie? Are you, you were educated with the white people. And, you know, whose side are you really on? And those debates rage to this day on his legacy. And we're going to get into why he's such a controversial figure in our later episodes. But you can see he's a very complicated person and he's going to do some very unspeakable things in the future. Now let's fast forward again, Caleb. In 1776, the second American Continental Congress meets. There was another one a year before, but it's not pertinent to our story. This is the big one. You know the significance of 1776. So it's not like everybody just showed up on July 4th and wrote out the declaration and everything was set in motion. This conference lasted for months and it was a work in progress to get everything to lead up to Congress actually declaring independence. But they started setting feelers out to the Iroquois nations and other Indian nations to see where their loyalties lied if it ended up coming to the point where war happened. The Six Nations decided, yeah, maybe we should send some diplomats down and find out what's going on here at this conference. So they came down sometime in the spring. To the Six Nations, this conference was kind of very familiar to them because they called them the 13 Fires. They viewed all these different colonies as separate nations like themselves, and they viewed Philadelphia kind of like the Onondaga capital. They're all coming together and they're having a grand council. And that's kind of reading a lot into it. We don't have their writings from their side, but we can kind of piece it out of here based on what they do here. So they come in on June 11th. When was the declaration adopted, Caleb? July. July. So this is just four weeks before this happens. This is where they're all talking and getting it led up to it. And so the Haudenosaunee come in with their ambassadors and they sit down and they give this speech. Brothers, we hope the friendship that is between you and us will be firm and continue as long as the sun shall shine and the waters run, that we and you may be one people and have but one heart and be kind to one another. Brothers, the King of Great Britain 
hearkening to the evil counsel of some of his foolish young men, is angry with us, because we will not let him take away from us our land and all that we have. Brothers, we shall order all of our warriors and young men not to hurt you or any of your kindred, and we hope that you will not suffer any of your young men to join with our enemies or do us any wrong, that nothing may happen to make any quarrel between us. How do you think that's going to work out, Caleb? Spoilers. Well, honestly, it, it sounds like a pretty good strategy. You've been weakened so much over the past hundred years due to losing the trade influence with the French. So they might be thinking, okay, if the colonists here want to start fight themselves, you know, this will give us an opportunity to sit back, get stronger. And also people will be coming to us and asking for our help again, as opposed to people just constantly pushing us away. So they continue, Brothers, we desire to you to accept a few necessities which we present to you as tokens of our goodwill towards you. So they give presents out to all the different congressional members. And it says here that after the presents were delivered, that the Onondaga chief came to John Hancock and begged to give him an Onondaga name. And they're kind of like, what? Now, the Haudenosaunee did this very often when they wanted to really encourage somebody and make them, I wouldn't say puffed up, but really let them know that they really appreciate them. And so the Congress said, okay, yeah, you can give him a name. And so they give him the name Karaduanan, which means great tree. From there forward, they referred to John Hancock as the great tree. Now, it's very interesting and it may be a total coincidence, but I think that there's a lot of symbolism in that because they view John Hancock as the president of the Congress if you parallel that to the Six Nations, who's the president of their council fire? Tadadaho. Tadadaho. And what is Tadadaho's symbol? The pine tree. The pine the tree eagle. with the eagle on top. So it could be a really big coincidence, but it could be that they're taking that symbology from their council fire, realizing that the Anadaga, if you look at the Hiawatha belt, it has the pine tree as their symbol, and they're viewing him as the pine tree, realizing that they've started their own United Nations. There's no way to prove that either way, but I think that the, the symbolism is really striking. So that's what we have for you guys today. Next time we're going to talk about how the Six Nations try to deal with this family quarrel and see how they're kind of pulled and torn in different directions as the war starts. Before we go, though, Caleb, we've got a lot of people that we need to thank because the Wild Sweet Potato Clan grew a lot in this past month. So I'm going to read some of their names. We would like to welcome to the clan Abba Breath. He gave us five stars. Thank you, sir. Or woman. I'm sorry, is, is Abba Breath a... I think it's I, Abba Breath, actually. Yeah, but is that a female name or a male? Is, is that feminine? <laughs> <laughs> well, Abba means father in Aramaic, so I don't know. And I don't know what breath means. <laughs> All right, then. We'd also like to thank Darth Andronicus. Uh, also, Rowan, Apple 12. He's a pretty cool guy. Yep. And Apperson 55, Buckeye in Minnesota, Nick B916. Oh, hold on. It says Nick B is already a member of a Seneca Wolf clan. I don't know if we can have dual clan citizenship. I guess we'll allow it, but you might want to check with the Wolf clan. They might be a little more strict. That's true, since she is Seneca. Okay, we also have Nomad Guerra, the Beave 27, M. Benji. 87, and IG Commissar. IG Commissar. Also, Rico Tungsten. Man, how many did we get? B. Taller. 
<laughs> be taller. <laughs> I just got it. It might be Taylor, actually. Regardless, thank you so much, everybody who's left five-star reviews. If you haven't yet, there's still a chance to join. Yeah, it's for a limited time until we stop doing the podcast. Well, actually, we probably will keep doing it. I think we've got almost 100 Wild Sweet Potato Clan members. Yeah, it's really encouraging and awesome. We actually had our first review from Germany also by a Hungarian man. Oh, that's too bad. I wish I could have read it in a German accent. Well, why don't you do a Hungarian accent? Just just make one up. I don't know what it is. We would also like to remind you to check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. Make sure to like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And also, you can email us at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. So thank you very much, everybody. I hope this sets the stage. We're really looking forward to getting into the Revolutionary War, and we will see you soon. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.